Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart and with all thy soul and with all thy mind. This is the first and great commandment. And the second is like unto it. Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. You think about those two statements. Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, and so on. Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. Both of those are encapsulated within the Pentateuch. You'll find the second of those, Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself, uh, in the book of Leviticus. You'll see the former part, even there in Deuteronomy and the chapter 6. Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart and with all thy soul and with all thy mind. There is a hotel in Scotland in a beautiful part of the Highlands near a place called Loch Fyne. And that beautiful hotel, as you enter in through the front, there are two pillars. And on one pillar it says, Thou shalt love the Lord thy God. And on the other pillar it says, Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. These are both, according to the Lord Jesus Christ, the summation of God's law. And as we look at the moral law of God as it's found in the Pentateuch, there's something that has to be emphasized. It needs to be remembered by all of us in the day in which we live. And that is that that moral law is a code that is timeless. It is a code that is eternal and unchangeable. I made some reference to this last time, and I want to flesh it out a little further today. But in introducing the subject, I pointed out that in Scripture, not just in the Pentateuch, but in the Scripture as a whole, the word law has various applications and various usages. In fact, in Psalm 119 and the metrical version of that section that we were singing this morning, you will notice, perhaps, that it mentions the law, and then in another stanza it talks about thy laws. So those are two particular applications of that word, and in the one case the word law has reference to the whole of the Bible. Just as we read in Psalm 19 about the law of the Lord is perfect, converting the soul, that's not just talking about the five books of Moses, that's talking about God's word as a whole. So we can speak about the whole Bible as the law of the Lord. But within that, you have the word law that has particular applications. There is indeed the law of Moses, the five books, the Pentateuch, the Torah, as it's often called, those five books are referred to by the Lord Jesus Christ as the law of Moses. Within that, you read about the law of the Lord in various ways. I mentioned last time, and I want to repeat this and flesh it out a little, the threefold division of the law, something which is denied by many, even within Christendom, if we want to call it that. Within the Christian church are people who deny the threefold division of the law. But there is a threefold division of the law. 
we speak about the ceremonial law. What do we mean by that? Well, we're talking about that which had to do with procedures in worship, particularly for Israel, and that system of ceremonies which prefigured Christ. Now, you may remember that we studied quite a bit of that in the book of Leviticus. Remember how we talked about the various offerings and the work of the priest and the the various feast days that are mentioned in Leviticus chapter 23. All of these belong to the ceremonial law. And when we talk about the words of Paul in Colossians uh, chapter 2, when he's speaking about holy days and new moons and feast days, all of which are done away in Christ, he's referring to the ceremonial system. So we must understand that. If you look at the book of Exodus, we'll just do a little quick synopsis here. From chapter number 21 of Exodus, you'll see that there are certain things that are mentioned there. But from chapter 25, we'll come back to that in a moment, but in chapter 25, you will see that Moses was told by the Lord at the very beginning of that chapter, Speak unto the children of Israel that they bring me an offering. Of every man that giveth it willingly with his heart, ye shall take my offering. And all the things that are then listed, the Lord said, were to be used for the building of a sanctuary. That's mentioned in Leviticus 20, or sorry, Exodus 25 and verse number 8. Let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell among them. And then he mentions it as the tabernacle, verse 9. And what follows is a description of the various pieces of furniture and how they were to be used. And you can see that right up into the following chapters. You come into chapter 28. uh, There is a description of the garments of the priest. When you go beyond that, you have the Continual burnt offering, the altar of incense, the laver of brass, the oil, the perfume. How all of this was to be employed. And right through the remainder of Exodus, you have obviously that which speaks of Christ in type and in ceremony. But that belongs to the ceremonial law. That which happened in Leviticus chapter 16, where you have... The sin offering, the two goats, the goat that was killed, the goat that was the Azazel in the Hebrew, the scapegoat, two aspects of one offering. It speaks of the Lord Jesus Christ, but that is not something that we do today. We don't kill goats, or we don't send goats off into the wilderness by the hand of a fit man. Those things belong to the ceremonial era Because they spoke of the Lord Jesus Christ who was yet to come. Again, you go through the Pentateuch and you see in the book of Numbers from chapter 5 and the chapters following certain things that God established for his people. For instance, he talks about putting out of the camp someone who is a leper or someone who is defiled by the dead. He talks about sins that are committed, where there's a trespass against the Lord. What was to be done in those circumstances? 
And you see, there's restitution for trespass. There's what's called the trial of jealousy. Where you have a situation of a man's wife going aside and committing a trespass against him. And all that was to be done in connection with that. You have the law of the Nazarite in chapter 6. You have the prince's offerings that are mentioned in chapter 7 of Numbers. All of these things to do with how the lamps are to be lighted, the consecration of the Levites, all this rehearsed about the Passover, all of this belongs to the ceremonial law. That system of law was abrogated. That means it was done away with. It was finished with at Calvary because the Lord Jesus Christ offered once and for all a real atoning sacrifice. All the work of the earthly priests belong to the ceremonial system. You study the book of Hebrews in the light of what the Pentateuch teaches, you'll find that the priest doesn't have any work to do anymore. There is but one priest. It's our great high priest, the Lord Jesus Christ. And all that belonged to the Levites and the, the Levitical system was part and parcel of what we call the ceremonial law. So that's the first thing. But then there's what's called the civil law of Israel. You'll find that in the Pentateuch. And as you're reading through your Bible, when you come to the book of Exodus chapter 20, and there's a rehearsal there of what happened at the mount when the Lord gave the Ten Commandments, that which followed is really interesting. You see this in chapter 21 of Exodus from verse 1. Now these are the judgments which thou shalt set before them. Then you have the law of slavery. They did have a modified form of slavery in Israel. It talks about the Hebrew servant. The word is slave. The rule was that he could serve for six years as a servant. And in the seventh year he could go out free for nothing. And the provision was made for a family. If someone was a slave living with his family, was quite happy to live in those circumstances. He wanted to stay because he loved his master. I love my master, my wife and my children. I will not go out free. I don't want to go away somewhere else. I want to continue to live here. There was a ceremony that was performed where they would take him to a doorpost and they would actually bore a hole in his ear with a thing called an awl. And that was to be a perpetual sign that he would serve that master forever. That's part of the law of God for Israel. But that doesn't happen today. We don't have that in our society. And those who would advocate for that would probably go to jail today. But the fact of the matter is, this was part and parcel of the law of God for Israel under the theocracy. That means God was their ruler. They didn't have a king. They didn't have a president. God was their direct ruler. That's God's law for Israel. And along with this, you have divers laws and ordinances, as your Bible will describe it. Things uh, were... 
There were to be decisions made, as we would have in our courtrooms, about manslaughter. Today you'll be familiar with the terms first degree murder, second degree murder, involuntary manslaughter, and so on. All of these kinds of provisions were actually based upon God's civil law for Israel. And you read Exodus chapter 21, you'll see that, for example, if men were fighting together and one hit the other with a stone or with his fist, he didn't kill him, but he was injured, there was to be restitution made by the one person for the other's loss of his earnings. It says that in Exodus 21 verse 19, If he rise again and walk abroad upon his staff, then shall he that smote him be quit, only he shall pay for the loss of his time, and shall cause him to be thoroughly healed. And there were various other things connected with that. If a man was fighting with another man, and inadvertently perhaps would hurt a woman who was expecting a child, and the child was aborted, the child died, the Bible says that he was to be punished in a certain way. And he, it says in verse 22 of Exodus 21, And he shall pay as the judges determine. And if any mischief follow, then thou shalt give life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, burning for burning, wound for wound, stripe for stripe. Now we haven't got time to go through all the civil law for Israel, but you will discover that God establish rules for all sorts of circumstances of life within the nation. They're called divers, laws, and ordinances. This belongs to the civil law. It was a system of judicial law which was given to regulate the everyday life of the Israelites as a nation under God. Just before we finish this part, let me just refer you to Deuteronomy. Since we're dealing with the Pentateuch, we notice that this is something that is not just in one of the books, like Exodus, but you'll find it scattered through the detail, through the material of the Pentateuch. In Deuteronomy chapter 11, it actually gives there what the Lord calls his statutes and his judgments and his commandments. What is required of the nation of Israel? There are various blessings and various curses that the Lord pronounces upon them. He talks about holy things that were to be eaten in the holy place in chapter 12 of Deuteronomy. What was to be done with those who would entice you to idolatry? Chapter 13. Idolatrous cities were to be destroyed. You go into chapter 14 of Deuteronomy. It talks about various meats that were clean and unclean. It talks about tithes. It talks about the year of release. It talks about the various feasts that were to be held. And so you have this intermingling of teaching about the ceremonial law and the civil law that regulated the life of the nation. Now these civil laws, let me emphasize, were for Israel as a theocracy, for Israel as a nation under God, 
and they were not binding on the Gentile nations. This was a law for Israel. The ceremonial law, the civil law. But there's a third part. And all that you find in the civil law is actually based upon the moral law, the Ten Commandments. That's why some uh, have failed to distinguish the three aspects of the law, because they say it all goes back to the Ten Commandments anyway. There's a sense in which that is true. But the Ten Commandments stand on their own as a moral code. It is that law by which our Creator governs the moral conduct of all mankind at all times. And someone said, this law of God, the Ten Commandments as a rule, can no more be abolished or changed than the nature of good and evil can be abolished or changed. We know as we pass through this life, as time passes, there are things that are now classed as good that were once viewed as evil. But that's because men have changed their views. It's not that God has changed his. What God said was evil in the past, God still says is evil. And he says this, woe to them that call good evil and evil good, that put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. There's a terrible confusion in our world today because men have abandoned God's rule. And there's clear evidence all around us today that humankind has little or no regard for this fact. God is our great creator. We saw that in Genesis chapter 1 and the verses of chapter 2. He has made all things and he has made humanity also for himself. Man's chief end, the catechism says, is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. This is, our, this is our task. This is what God demands of us. That we glorify him. That we bring honour to him. And that we enjoy him forever. Now God has given to mankind a fixed moral code. I've called it a timeless moral code. It is an inflexible standard by which man is to live. You'll see it listed very clearly in Exodus chapter 20 and again in Deuteronomy chapter 5. But you'll also see those standards mentioned all the way through the Bible. The Ten Commandments were given to all creatures for all periods and in all places. I was reading an article about a businessman here in America who... He's the CEO of a certain company. Uh, they have some high-end hotels and some other uh, kinds of businesses as well. But interestingly, that businessman, who I don't know if he's a Christian or not, but he made a decision that outside, I think it's nine different hotels in his group, he would have posted not posted, but actually established right at the front of the hotel, in each case, a granite pillar with the Ten Commandments on it. 
And of course, the government can't come in and say, well, you can't do that because there's a private owner of those uh, properties. But what a wonderful thing to do. To face people with God's law as they're entering into that place of business. The moral law does not have any relation to specific times or places. The moral law is a summary of God's eternal standard of right moral conduct for all people in all ages. And therefore everyone in every generation and every location, including today and our generation, needs to be concerned about his or her duty to their great creator and judge. And it's really important for us to establish this point. God's moral law is permanent and it is immutable and it is inflexible. Now people will say, but sure we can't keep God's law. What is the point of telling people that they must keep God's law if they're unable to do it? Well the point of it is that it is that which drives us to Christ. That's the point of it. But when we come to Christ, it doesn't mean that therefore we don't have to be concerned about God's commandments. We are to be concerned about his name. We're to be concerned about the way we worship him. We're to be concerned about his day. We're to be concerned about our neighbor. And all of those in the second table of the law have to do with our intrapersonal relationships with other people. Honour thy father and thy mother. Thou shalt not kill. Thou shalt not commit adultery. Thou shalt not steal. Thou shalt not bear false witness, lying and deception. Thou shalt not covet, wanting other people's stuff. This is God's timeless code. And I want to speak about this today a little further. Because it is important that we do so. It's part and parcel of the overall teaching of the Pentateuch. The law of God was the law of God not only for Israel, but it's the law of God for us. Let's think about three things. First of all, the rejection of God's law. You won't need me to tell you that there are a lot of false ideas regarding the authority and application of God's law for every age, including our own. The late Dr. Cairns, in his book, Chariots of God, which has to do with the law of God, said this, God gave the law at the very commencement of time. He will maintain the law until the day of final judgment. Nothing could be plainer God's law is permanent. So I'm here to tell you this morning that God's law is still in effect. Whatever men might claim, whatever men might say. And men do claim, and men do say, that the law of God has no jurisdiction over them today. The Ten Commandments are universally denied in our day, not only in the world at large, but also, sadly, in a great percentage of so-called Christian churches. 
Now, you know what the world's attitude today is. I don't care what God says. I don't care what God says. I have no desire to obey the Bible. I don't believe it for a start. And I certainly don't want to be restricted by it. That's the attitude of so many, isn't it? Just like those that are spoken of in the second psalm that I referenced last Lord's Day. Those kings, those people who ultimately are representing those that rose up against Christ in his day. That's, this is actually a prophetic psalm. But here's what it says. Why do the heathen rage and the people imagine a vain thing? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed saying, let us break their bands asunder and cast away their cords from us. We don't want this man to rule over us. That's what they said about the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what men and women say today. We're not going to have God's law. We'll do what we want. And many in the world will say, well, that's okay. You do, what, you do what's good for you. You do you and I'll do me. That's the attitude of the world today. You can do whatever you want to do and I'll do whatever I want to do. Is that what God says? Is that what God wants us to say? Now that's something you find in the world and you, you don't find any surprise in that. But where you are shocked and surprised is that there are many in the church, and I put that in inverted commas, the church, seem to have imbibed a same or similar attitude to varying degrees. You know there are some so-called churches and they completely reject the authority of the scriptures and they make up their own code of practice. One of our brethren recently was speaking about New England and his tour of certain parts of New England showing photographs of churches that have the rainbow flag on the front of their church and also on the church sign with the words something like this we are an affirming church what are they affirming? They're affirming that God's word is wrong and they're right on the matter of human sexuality. It doesn't matter what the Bible says about gender. It doesn't matter what the Bible says about male and female. It doesn't matter what the Bible says about homosexuality and sexual perversion. It doesn't matter because we're an affirming church. They're thumbing their nose at God's law. That's what they're doing. And yet they have ministers, supposedly. They make up their own code of practice. They accept and they practice openly and they promote things that God condemns in His Word. Now, people like that make a mockery of any claim to love God and Any claim that they exist to serve God in this world, they're doing nothing of the sort. They're serving the other. They're serving the devil. But there are supposedly Bible-believing groups and churches. 
who either theoretically or directly theologically reject the idea that the law of God has any force or any authority today. I know there are many good things that he said and wrote. But there are people who follow religiously the the teachings of John Nelson Darby who founded the Plymouth Brethren. And they make a radical separation between the Old Testament and the New Testament. Darby, for example, taught that during the period of grace, the New Testament, the law no longer has any significance for the believer. That's what he taught. He referred to the covenant of works as a fable. He considered the law to have been set aside. And that has had terrible effects in this world upon those who have imbibed his views. And some will tell you now that all you need to be a Christian is to make a decision for Christ. And the law of God doesn't have any place whatever in your life after that. And connected with this is the idea that the commandments were really for Israel. It was all for Israel. It wasn't for mankind at all. Now that's a falsehood. I already made the claim, or made the point rather, that the Lord Jesus Christ said that the Sabbath, for example, the Sabbath was made for man, or mankind. That means it wasn't just made for Jews. It was made for Jews and Gentiles. But of course there are people who will misquote and misapply the scripture in order to justify law breaking. And I've heard people say, quoting what is in fact scripture, but quoting it incorrectly, we are not under the law but under grace. Now what do they mean by that? We're not under the law but under grace. Well, it's basically carte blanche to do whatever you want. No, I don't need to worry about this, that or the other thing, because it's all under the blood. I remember once my mother telling me about a certain businessman. He was, in the old days in our country, we used to have, probably had them here too, bread servers. They would come around in a bread van to the various communities and you would buy bread there at the van I remember doing that with my mother often going out to the van with her and oh the smell of that fresh bread I can smell it still the guy would take this big long thing and bring the bread out and you would pay him whatever it was there was a man who professed to be a Christian from a certain communion of Christians and his practice was when someone said to him is that this morning's bread? He would say, yes it is, and then under his breath he would say, no it's not. Now why did he do that? Well he did that to deliberately deceive the person who was buying the bread from him. But his idea was that as long as he said, no it isn't, that the Lord would hear that and it would, it would be good, good to go. Can you imagine that kind of spirit? That kind of attitude? And I'm not suggesting that everybody... Everybody in certain communions who have great affection for John Nelson Darby are going to behave like that. I don't believe that they do. But this is the effect of this kind of teaching. We're not under the law, 
were under grace. In other words, they're wresting the scripture out of its context in order to support their false point of view and even their erroneous practices, especially in relation to the Lord's Day. Because this is where the rubber meets the road with many Christians. I know people in Reformed churches, Reformed churches, who after the Sunday morning service, they go do their grocery shopping in the afternoon. We're not under the law, we're under grace. J. Gresham Machen, the founder of what became the Orthodox Presbyterian Church, he said, what is faith, in his book, What is Faith, said this, a new and more powerful proclamation of that law is perhaps the most pressing need of the hour. Men would have little difficulty with the gospel if they had only learned the lesson of the law. So it always is. A low view of the law always brings legalism in religion. A high view of law makes a man a seeker after God's grace. Pray God that the high view may again prevail. Oh, there is a rejection of God's law today. We see it played out on the streets of our country. Where people think they can burn and trash and loot other people's property without consequence. Because they're able to do it, they do it. They don't have any regard for God's law. There's a high profile case at the moment, it's all over the news. Of course the usual things are happening in connection with that. The race baiting commences. Even though the police officers there in that case are all of the same ethnicity as the man that they killed, doesn't matter. The argument is, if it was a white boy, that wouldn't have happened. Which is a total lie, of course. If those policemen are thugs, they're going to be thugs no matter who they deal with. The fact of the matter is, there is no regard to it, little regard for law and order. That's why we have this situation that we have. And how is it addressed? Well, you have a lot of people complaining that the police are racist. Okay, what's the solution to that? We'll hire minority officers. Right? We'll hire more minority officers. So, in many of our major cities, the police chief is black or brown. I have no problem with that. That's the way it should be if he deserves the position doesn't matter what ethnicity he has. But there is an actual policy in place. There's an actual policy that is followed to try to make sure that people are more comfortable with those that are stopping them in road stops and so on. But it doesn't matter because those that are being stopped oftentimes, and I'm not referring to the person in this instance at all, I don't know anything about it, but many of those cases, they're not young men returning from Sunday school. They're criminals. They've either been involved in criminality or they're on their way to commit criminality. They don't have any regard for the law of God. And if you have some bad apples in the police, which in every walk of life there are bad apples, they're also men who don't have a regard for the law of God. And so you have the kind of situation that you have. 
But we have people with a very, very low view of God's law today. You know how the argument goes? This guy over here lives in a big house. He's rich. He's got loads of money. I can break in his house and take his stuff. Or I'm poor. So I can go to the grocery store or to some box store and I can load up a cart and steal stuff and take it away in a van. And it's okay because I'm poor. No regard for God's law. That's the day that we're living in. There is a rejection of the law of God. But I want us to think about the relevance of God's law very quickly. What is recorded in the early chapters of Genesis establishes clearly what is essentially a foundation regarding humanity and God's moral law. What is that foundation? It is that which John Nelson Darby denied. It's what we call the covenant of works. In Genesis chapter 2, verses 16 and 17, the Lord God commanded the man, that's Adam, saying, Of every tree of the garden thou mayest freely eat, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, look at the words, thou shalt not eat of it. For in the day that thou eatest thereof, thou shalt surely die. Thou shalt not. That was God's law. God was ring-fencing the tree of life. Now that which was later put into code, written down by God and by Moses in the Pentateuch, was actually written upon the hearts of Adam and Eve. Do you know that? The moral law was given to Adam and was thus given to all creatures. It's theoretical, of course, but if Adam had continued in that state of righteousness in which he was created, if he had not sinned against God, he would have gone on living into eternity. But he didn't. And he broke the law of God, thou shalt not, because he did what God said thou shalt not do. He did it. He took of the forbidden fruit. Now just because Adam broke the law of God, it did not then negate his responsibility to keep that rule of righteousness. God's law was still God's law, even after he sinned. And the law was relevant from that time until the giving of the law on tablets of stone at Mount Sinai. See, there are people who think that the Ten Commandments was the beginning of the law And it was only for Israel. It began with Moses. And therefore it ended at Calvary. But the fact of the matter is the law did not begin there when the Lord gave the Ten Commandments. The law was reissued at Sinai. If you look at Romans chapter 4 and Romans chapter 5, there's a couple of verses there that speak to this very important words. Romans 4 verse 15 Because the law worketh wrath for where no law is there is no transgression. How could there be sin if there wasn't law? Right? How could there be something that you've done that's wrong if God had not established what was right? So Adam and Eve did wrong because God had given the code of what was right and they broke that. 
Now go to Romans 5.13. The words in parenthesis here, For until the law, sin was in the world. But sin is not imputed when there is no law. Until the law, sin was in the world. That's until the law was actually written down. The law was already in existence. How could people be held accountable for breaking God's law if such a law had not yet been revealed? Wouldn't that mean that everybody that lived from Adam's time until Moses and the events that are recorded in Exodus 19, that they were not under the moral law? How could God hold someone responsible for sin where there was no law forbidding that? That's what Romans 5.13 is telling us. So if people were rebuked for sin or punished for sin before the law was actually given at Sinai and they were, then God's law must have been in place. God's law must have been in existence. And we will see that the violation of the Ten Commandments was punished and it was rebuked before Mount Sinai and the giving of the tables of the law. Let's see this. When did people sin before Sinai? How was there a law that they broke? Well, just look at some of the references in two of the books of the Pentateuch, Genesis and Exodus. Let's look at this. It proves what I'm asserting here. That the law was enforced, that the law was relevant, before the tablets of stone were given to Moses. Look at Genesis 35. This will have to be very quick here that we move through these verses. But Genesis 35 and verse 2, what do we have there? Idolatry. Jacob said to his household and to all that were with him, Put away the strange gods that are among you and be clean and change your garments. Put away the strange gods. What's that? Isn't that the first commandment? Thou shalt have no other gods before my face. The second commandment is included, of course, as well. And we notice how God judged Egypt for their idolatry. How could he do that if there was no law in place? Look with me at Exodus 16. We gave this illustration last time, just to emphasize it. From verse 27 onwards, you will find that when they were told that they were not to gather the manna on the Sabbath, when they broke that commandment, they experienced the chastening hand of God upon them. Was the fourth commandment then not enforced? Yes, it was. But it hadn't been written down on stone yet. The same is true of the fifth commandment. In Genesis chapter 9, in Genesis chapter 18, and in Genesis chapter 21, you'll see that the fifth commandment was enforced about the honouring of parents. Genesis chapter number 21, from verse 9, it talks about Sarah and how the son of Hagar, that's Ishmael, was mocking, making fun, not honouring his parent. You'll see that The sixth commandment was in force. Cain and Abel. Cain was punished for killing his brother. Why? Because he wasn't supposed to commit murder. That's the law of God. You read Genesis chapter 12. 
and it speaks about the sin of adultery. You read Genesis chapter 20 and Genesis chapter 39 and it's the same thing. Genesis 39 is the story of Joseph. He's in the home of Potiphar. He's alone there with Potiphar's wife. She was an evil woman. She had designs upon young Joseph, probably a good, handsome young boy. And she said to him, come and lie with me. Joseph says, no, I'm not going to do that. Why? Notice his words. How can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? That's Genesis 39. That's before the law has been written down on tables of stone in Exodus 20. How did Joseph know that it was wrong to commit adultery with Potiphar's wife? Because he knew the law of God was written on his heart. It was in force before Sinai. What about the Eighth Commandment? Same thing. Stealing. Joseph realized that to commit adultery with Potiphar's wife would also involve stealing, taking that which did not belong to him. What about the sin of bearing false witness? Genesis 4 verse 9, Cain told lies about his brother Abel. Tried to pretend he didn't know anything about what was up with Abel when he had killed him. In Genesis 18 verse 15, Sarah told a lie to the Lord and the Lord called her out on it. Again, the sin of covetousness applies as well. It was punished before the law was written down because the moral law of God is timeless. It's for all people and it is for all periods of time. Before the law was written on tablets of stone and after it, before the cross and after it, all have sinned. All have broken the law of God and of course that's what sin is. That's how we're convicted. When we realize two verses, Romans 3.23 and 1 John 3 verse 4. The first one, for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. We fall short of God's standard. We fail to keep his law. But then, it is the positive breaking of the law. 1 John 3 verse 4. What is sin? Sin is the transgression of the law. Sin is failure to obey the, the thou shalts of Scripture. And it is disobedience to the thou shalt nots of Scripture. And that's why we talk about sins of omission and sins of commission. That which we fail to do and that which we do that we shouldn't. Both of those constitute our sin and our law breaking. But one final point, And that is the revelation of God's law. We read about it in Exodus 20 and again here in Deuteronomy 5. The law is given in a codified form to Moses. This was an event that was really unparalleled in the history of mankind. It was a special one-off. When God came down to actually speak audibly to his people and then to write on tablets of stone the words of his law. We could compare Exodus 19 from verse 16 and Exodus 20 verse 1 with Deuteronomy 5 verses 4 and 22. But it's also described in the book of Psalms. In Psalm 68, you know, it's wonderful how the scriptures tie in the one with the other. 
Here's the book of Psalms. You might not expect a reference like this, but in Psalm 68, verse 8, it actually rehearses what happened when the law was given to Moses. Look at it. The earth shook, the heavens also dropped at the presence of God, even Sinai itself was moved at the presence of God, the God of Israel. That's a direct reference to what happened when God spoke his law to mankind and wrote it out on tables of stone. Is it not important? It has often been said that when writing out the law, God didn't use paper or parchment, he used tables of stone. And that suggests permanence, doesn't it? Permanence. And we read the prophets of the Old Testament. We see how they often spoke of it, that which happened in the Pentateuch. You go to the New Testament, you see how Christ and the apostles in their preaching employed the moral law. It's very clear that it is a permanent moral code. Read the story of the rich young ruler. How did the Lord approach the rich young ruler? He talked to him about the commandments, didn't he? And the rich young ruler said, well, Lord, I've kept all those commandments from my youth up. I'm good to go with that. I, I, I keep the law. So the Lord smoked him out, we might say. Realizing this was a young man who was wedded to his riches, he loved his possessions. Jesus said to him, not to all Christians, let's not extrapolate from the Bible stuff that God doesn't want us to apply to ourselves. Sell all that thou hast and give to the poor. I've heard people say that's what all Christians should do. The Bible has no such command for Christians to do that. The Lord commanded the rich young ruler to do that. Sell everything that you've got and give it to the poor and then come and follow me. And he said, oh, wait a minute. (laughs) No, I, I don't think I can do that, Lord. Why? Well, the Holy Spirit tells us why. He went away sad. He went away sorrowful. For he had great possessions. Covetousness. The Tenth Commandment. This was a young man who was wedded to his stuff. He loved his riches. He wasn't willing at all, even for Christ, to part with any of it. And so the Lord used the law to convict him. And that's what the law does even today. It brings conviction. And there are many things that the law does. Samuel Bolton, who said, the sharp needle of the law makes way for the golden thread of the gospel. He said this, Blessed be God that there is this fear upon the spirits of wicked men, otherwise we would not, we could not live well in the world. One man would be a devil to another. Every man would be a Cain to his brother, an Amnon to his sister, an Absalom to his father, a Saul to himself, a Judas to his master. For what one does, all men would do were it not for a restraint upon their spirits. And he was making the point that God's law, where it prevails in a nation, does bring restraint. And the history of our own country is proof of that. But you know what the greatest work of the law is? 
It's to show us our sin and thus our great need of a saviour. You think of what happened at Sinai. Read about it in Exodus chapter 19. It's rehearsed again there in Deuteronomy 5 where Moses is talking about what happened then. The Lord came down in great majesty. There was a voice, an audible voice of God from heaven. And there was an earthquake. And there was fire. And smoke. It was an awesome statement of God's law. It was a condemnation of sin. But we go from that mountain to another mountain. We go to Mount Calvary. And what happened there? There was another great earthquake. There was a supernatural darkness. And God came down once again in awful majesty. And just as it was at Sinai when God's holy law stood paramount, there at Calvary he magnified the law and made it honourable. Because the reason that Jesus was on the cross is because he was bearing our law-breaking. He was dying as the law-breaker. Though he never had broken the law, he kept it perfectly in his own person. But he was judged as a lawbreaker because God made him to be sin for us who knew no sin that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. And so while we can say that Mount Sinai announced the condemnation of the law at the cross and the death of Jesus where he's bearing the curse and the condemnation of our lawbreaking, there's great satisfaction of the law. At that mount When the law was given, God spoke thunderously, spelt out the demands of his law. He established a standard of perfect righteousness that you and I could never attain to in a million years. But at Calvary he spoke triumphantly, announcing that his law was satisfied and that perfect righteousness had been attained for us. Jesus is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone that believes. See, the law is only able to do one thing, and that is to condemn. The law cannot save. That's why you're wasting your time if you think that you can do your best and that will satisfy God. It will never satisfy God. Never. We would have to be perfect to satisfy God. We've already sinned, so that's out the window. If I were to be perfect from now on, and who is able to do that? But even if I could be perfect from now on, that doesn't make up for all of the sin and the law-breaking of the past. But listen, Calvary covers it all. The past with its sin and the shame. And even our future failures... Not that we can be complacent about our sin. Not at all. But isn't it wonderful to know that when we get to the cross, all our sins are forgiven. There was a man lying sick of the palsy. And Jesus looked at him. And he just said simply, Son, thy sins be forgiven thee. How did that man feel that day? Well, we should feel the same way. We should feel the same way. Because the Lord has said that to us. 
If we have looked to Christ in repentance and faith, son, daughter, thy sins be forgiven thee. They're gone. They're buried. They've been atoned for. They've been paid for. The handwriting of ordinances that was against us, as Paul puts it in Colossians, has been taken out of the way. It's been removed. At the cross we have all our sins forgiven. And as those who have come to the cross, we can say with the Apostle Paul, I delight in the law of God after the inward man. Oh, I delight in his command. Love to be led by his dear hand. His divine will is sweet to me. Hallowed by blood-stained Calvary. Jesus shall lead me night and day. Jesus shall lead me all the way. He is the truest friend to me. For I remember Calvary.